Well, I'm not sure how to follow that, but <laughs> uh, my name's Alexandra. I am the co-chair of Slow Food Los Angeles, which follows in line the slow, slow city philosophy pretty well. Uh, slow Food LA is a new chapter here in Los Angeles. It's one of the original Slow Food chapters, but we're just bringing it back if anybody's interested. I got, brought some postcards. Uh, they're back by Bill's book. And um, uh, food is often the gateway into figuring out how to be, uh, you, whatever it is you're interested in figuring out. And uh, moving slow is a great way uh, to be. And slow food is obviously a, a way uh, that I enjoy being, and I think Bill would be a great uh, person to ask any of those questions. And I'm so curious about how living in Manhattan and eating a uh, slow food lifestyle would, you know, how that unfolded. So thank you very much. Without further ado, Mr. Powers. <laughs> okay, thank you, Alexandra. Um, and thanks so much to Slow Food uh, LA and also to Slow Food USA for sponsoring this national tour. Um, and also to uh, LA Eco Villages. Uh, you all are here. I appreciate that and your help with the events. Um, feel free to talk with them afterwards. And uh, we have someone here from Transition uh, LA as well, Transition Towns. Yeah. And um, Skylight Books, you know, a great independent bookstore. So. So basically, I'm really excited about actually even the cover of this uh, book. And oh, one more thing, also from Root Simple, we have uh, the folks from that, that podcast as well on the back. So, um, so it, I love the cover of this book. It's a California artist, Kyle Pierce, who actually like took a New York City photograph through a window and painted these butterflies and stuff on it. And the book is 100% post-consumer recycled paper, and he did the drawings inside. So it's just a really beautiful like artist and product that I really want to just thank my publisher for doing such a great job with. So, um, you know, I wanted to just start out by saying, you know, um, there's a lot of sort of backstory to this uh, book about sort of living simply and slowly in New York, and I thought I would share a little bit of that with you today, that it all sort of started because I was working abroad for many years in West Africa and also in, Liber in, in Liberia and Sierra Leone, also in Bolivia and the Amazon of Brazil, and I began to realize that, you know, even though we were having so many successes with local projects to preserve indigenous rainforests or stop climate change through various mechanisms, energy projects and so on, or, you know, writing books about this dynamic or getting it into the New York Times and the Atlantic, um, I was working very long hours, like sometimes, you know, 18 hours or whatever to try to, like, save the world. And I began to see that, you know, sometimes less is more and a more focused kind of a simpler life where you just do a couple things well is so much more powerful than this kind of activism where you're always always working. And the other thing I realized after being abroad for over a decade and coming back to the US was that actually we're in this culture of speed and this culture of more is better. And we need, you know, I just began to really sort of question that. And that's when, you know, Back in New York City, after all these years abroad, over a decade, when I met this very inspiring physician. And I know a couple of you read my book, 12 by 12, which was actually about this experience of living in a 12 foot by 12 foot cabin off grid. But the story about that was that I met this physician who still lives there. She's been there for 10 years in this 12 by 12. And she actually did it um, as a form of tax resistance, for one thing. She lowered her salary from 200000 down to like 11000 a year to avoid war taxes. And she also, 
<laughs> got rid of electricity, running water, had a composting toilet, and she moved to this multi-ethnic kind of uh, multi-generational and you know different socioeconomic groups in this eco village um, or eco. It wasn't really an eco village, but it was a plot of land that was 30 acres with several houses on like an acre and a half, and then the rest left wild. So the interesting thing was, you know, I met her, interviewed her, and I was like, wow, this is such an inspiring person. And I was about to kind of almost forget about it and go back to New York City, but she wrote me this handwritten note by candlelight in the 12 by 12. She said, why don't you come live in the 12 by 12? Not with her, that would be a little tight probably, but she was going to be uh, gray-dogging it, as she said, across the country on the Greyhound, and she said, why don't you come live for a season in the, uh, the 12 by 12? I was like, yes. <laughs> so I canceled my trip back to New York, and I moved into the 12 by 12. And the fascinating thing was, you know, when you expand um, the amount of like free time you have and nature and everything, you don't notice the smallness as much. And just to kind of give you a sense of what the 12 by 12 looks like, and this is maybe audience participation, I don't know if, uh, David, if you could stand up and maybe you as well. And maybe, could you stand up? And ma'am on, on the corner there, can you guys arrange yourselves 12 by 12 here? I sometimes do this just to show you guys what it's really like. like. 12 apart, you mean? 12 feet by 12 feet square. All right, so you got to move. Yeah, that's right. Okay, is, is that about right? Are they in 12 by 12, or is it still not quite there? Okay, so while you're standing there, don't move. Um, so this is where I lived and where she's been living for the past decade. You walk in the front door, and this is the space that you're in. Um, and she's got, she sleeps up top in a small bed. Um, there's a little propane stove here. There's two rainwater catchments, barrels, large ones on either side there. They catch all rainwater. Outside is a solar shower and a five-gallon composting toilet that the humanor handbook says is like the most simple kind. And she's got a great-grandmother's rocking chair here and just a very kind of a simple, like, elegant environment. And on my 11th night there, I realized, wow, you know, I just lit the candles at night without even thinking about it, without even flipping a switch. And I begin to experience what she experiences, which is tears of joy in the morning of living in nature in this simplicity. And when you go outside at night and you see it glowing kind of in the forest, this looks like a jack-o'-lantern kind of glowing in, in the woods, and it's just really beautiful. So thank you very much for being the 12 by 12 pillars. I appreciate that. So, you know, when I had this amazing experience in North Carolina, I had to move back to New York City. But when I got back, I realized something. I wasn't living 12 by 12. <laughs> we actually had a 1,900 square foot townhouse in Queens. And it was great. We had the backyard garden and everything like that. But, you know, there was a sense of it being too big. You know, we had three, three bedrooms and a basement bedroom, a lot of stuff, a lot of clutter. And we were experiencing time poverty. Now, how many folks here sometimes feel like in this last week, how many people at one point or other felt stressed or overscheduled? Let me see a show of hands. Okay, so a lot of people. Some of you... We're very relaxed. But, um, you know, the, um, well, I, you know, I was sort of part of this, like, 24-7 culture, the addiction of speed, of always checking your gadgets and so on. Um, I hate to admit this, but my wife and I actually ended up taking separate honeymoons. Um, yeah, I know. It's called the Unimoon trend. It's a trend. Um, we just tacked them onto work trips because, yeah, it's a trend. I know. It's just this hyper-individual. During the slow year, we actually took an actual honeymoon together, finally. But that was the kind of, you know, and when I was alone in, in Paris on my own little honeymoon, I was just like, this is enough. So when I got back to uh, Queens, we decided to go ahead and sort of leave the 1900-foot uh, townhouse and move into Manhattan into a tiny apartment. 
This apartment was basically two 12 by 12s put together with a little kitchen and a little bathroom. Um, 340 square feet, so it's a micro apartments. And I thought maybe um, I would just read you a little short passage, if you'd like, from the book, just to sort of uh, describe what it was like at first. And just so you're not totally romanticized by it, this is like our first experience when we downsized to this tiny apartment in New York. My wife's name is Melissa. At first, Melissa and I call it our little ballet, the way we passe des poissons past each other and the piles of half-unpacked stuff in our minuscule apartments. But three days in, novelty out, it's clearly slam dancing in an undersized mosh pit. We bang shoulders, bruise shins on bed edges, and curse over the four-inch by eight-inch kitchen counter. Is Bloomberg high? Melissa lashes out one evening after slicing her finger while dicing a carrot on a cutting board straddling sink and stove. I'm already sick of his micro-apartment initiative. I'm in the East Wing, our living, dining, only room, baffled by the Byzantine directions for the IKEA fold-up table we purchased specifically to fit this space. Scrotally colliding with the edge of the tiny fireplace, I wedge into the kitchenette with Melissa and kiss her finger. It's bleeding, but just barely. I grope for a bright side. We just need three lights in our entire pad, I announce. And look at that one heater. It's just so tiny. Our carbon, carbon footprint is a fifth of what we had in Queens. Yeah, honey, but my carbon foot is five times bigger than this apartment, she says, soaping up her finger. This feels like carbon foot binding. I know. To bathe in our fish tank bathtub, it's three feet long. I adapt the yoga pose shoulder stand, head in the water, flush against the tub, butt against the other end, feet at a 90 degree angle up the wall. Then there's the toilet. It's impossible to shut the bathroom door, um, so you have to have the door open. Um, And that same bathroom door only opens out 11 inches before meeting the bedroom's queen-size bed. So it's one thing I discover to live 12 by 12 in serene solitude, the gurgle of no-name creek ribbiting through your permaculture orchards. It's quite another for a twosome to squeeze into a double-wide 12 by 12 in an impure polis. Sure, we've winnowed our belongings way down from Queens, but we still have far too much. Moving boxes flaunt their bulk. Four large paintings stand at accusatorily stiff attention against the fireplace. Where to put it all? New York City Mayor Bloomberg's micro-apartment initiative embraces architectural minimalism, allowing for apartments smaller than 400 square foot minimum required by the city's zoning codes. The law makes sense. Let folks pay cheaper rents and burn less fossil fuels. But 340 square feet just isn't right. Okay, but I found a solution. Let me read this part. An index card. That was our solution. An index card taped above our mailboxes at the bottom of the building stairwell. Moving sale, it reads. Everything must go. Call or stop by 6B. At the bottom, it's signed Wanda and Dave. Apartment 6B is our exact 340 square foot apartment, but two stories down. Melissa and I are enthused, and I knock on Wanda and Dave's door that evening. We'll score space savers at a bargain, we reason, and see how another couple has elegantly navigated minimalism's rough waters. Some people are laughing. I think you probably already read this here. Uh, the, The door opens, and Wanda, a slim woman in her late 20s, invites us inside. The ensuing encounter is surreal. Though identical to ours, Wanda's apartment feels a fraction of the size. 
Entering, I feel the same sense of constrained claustrophobia as under the low-ceilinged floor seven and a half, seven and a half in the film Being John Malkovich. But it's not from the ceiling. Wanda and Dave have entombed the contents of a macro apartment inside of a micro. This is Dave's recording studio, Wanda says with a curt, ironic laugh. A profusion of audio mixers and tower speakers muscle their way around a full-size sofa. Their flat-screen television overwhelms one wall. Unable to move corporally, I swivel my head and squint into the dim kitchen swollen with food processors, salad spinners, and all manner of pots and pans. I can hardly breathe. My heart ticks faster. The walls close in like the trash compactor scene in Star Wars. Wanda says, I probably shouldn't point this out since you guys are just moving in, but living in 340 square feet, she pauses, twisting up her face, it's not human. So that was our first experience with uh, how some of our neighbors did it and why they were moving out. So, but you know, once we kind of thought about it some more and looked at all of our boxes and all of our stuff cluttering in the micro, we decided, okay, what we're going to do is equip this like a ship. So we basically um, thought about how Manhattan has these beautiful rivers flowing through it, and we said, okay, we're on a sailboat sailing through Manhattan, and we're going to just have like the absolute minimum on this boat. And so we found like the perfect his and her little cubby boxes, and that's the maximum we could have of miscellaneous stuff. Um, we just shedded most of our clothes. Um, we only had one painting in the entire apartment, one thing on the walls. You know. So um, what happened over time was like by living in that simplicity, um, we began to live in the bigger city as our living room and kitchen and so on. Um, we also discovered Tar Beach, which is what we called our rooftop. <laughs> um, a tar rooftop, not an official roof deck, but we were up there every single day, uh, probably twice a day for the entire year, watching the seasons change in the tree above us and just enjoying this gorgeous rooftop. And you know, we also discovered like looking up. So if you ever just like, even in this bookstore, if you look up, there's actually a tree um, above us and the way the light is coming through the skylights and shining on the trees. Um, you can do that in LA and you're no longer in the consumer kind of street level, but you're just like in this other realm that's always available. You know, the fast moving clouds in the sky, the blue of the sky and so on and the trees. So, you know, the other thing is how many people here have uh, yoga or meditation practice, something like that? Okay, maybe half of you, right? Do you find that also kind of like helps you to live like in urban environments in a much calmer, more peaceful way? Right, so that's something we began to do more. Um, the other thing was we thought a lot about this sort of work culture we have here. Um, I don't know if you know that Americans actually work about 30% more hours than we did in the 70s, and yet labor is three times more efficient than it was in the 70s. So we have this huge amount of efficiency of labor, but why are we working so hard? Now, what about all the time-saving devices that we're supposed to save time? What do they actually end up doing? Like 75% of us are under the table at dinner checking emails in, in this culture. And the first thing you do when you wake up for most Americans is what? Check the phone, right? And also the first thing before you go to bed sometimes, the last thing. So that extends the work day to like 13 and a half hours, if you look at it in the real sense. That's not a very sane, joyful you know, system. So we were thinking, you know, how can we, okay, so I'm going to do something radical. I'm going to work a two-day work week. <laughs> so I scaled back my hours, not just the apartment to this tiny apartment, but I actually started working two days a week. And I applied the 80-20 principle, which is where you accomplish, you know, like 80% of your results in 20% of the time, often. And likewise, you squander, you know, uh, 
80% of your time on just 20% of the results. So by working you know, smarter instead of harder, um, I was able to really not have my income go down too much um, and just be much more efficient. Um, and also, you know, we decided to spend more time having silent meals, like in the Manhattan restaurants. We'd even be in a restaurant in Manhattan for like two hours just not talk. And it's really cool, you know, you just smell the scents of the restaurant, you see, hear the sound of the waiters moving around, just enjoying romantically gazing into each other's eyes, that type of thing. You know, and um, that's part of the slow food idea, also just enjoying. Of course, one time when I did that, um, I'd been savoring, I'd been doing another slow practice in cities, which is, sa- which is cultivating anticipation. So you're just immediately uh, satisfied desire, you, you cultivate this anticipation of it happening, and that gives you so much more joy. And I've been wanting to eat these scallops for for so long we just like put it off put it off put it off finally three weeks later we ate we went to eat it and just oh enjoyed it so much and while I was still savoring it the guy next to me sat down ordered the scallops and ate them in two bites while checking his phone I was like wow you know and I can relate to that you know that that sort of um, fast um, idea any other quick sort of slow practices you all have here in LA that help you to kind of get outside of the culture of speed David Okay, bicycle riding. I was just on your, I was on your wonderful bike trail today in LA, which is incredible. On my friend's bike. Walking. Walking. Okay. Anything else? Getting old. Getting old. Right. Learning how to slow down because your life depends on it. What's left of it? Okay. Yes. And you can retire many times in your life, not just at the end. That's the idea of creativity sabbaticals, taking time to just savor the things that are most meaningful for you and working on, you know, paying yourself first, like for a long time, have like a savings ethic, develop a kind of a nest egg, you know, so that you can do that and other ideas. Another? Uh, Sort of tagging on, you know, all of us, not just for older, but I mean, I, as I have slowed down, I have looked at other people in my life as they're speeding along, and it's like, you know, it's like the guy with the fighting but you watch other people going so fast, it's a little dizzy. Yeah. So, you know, I guess I'm not sure Right. Well, also, when you slow down a little bit, you start to see that there's all this slow culture that's there that you didn't see because you were going too fast. And there are all these cultural creatives. Like, I met a guy in Washington Square Park. I talk about it in the book. He said to me, oh, I work 24-7. It's like, oh, really? That's how I used to be. And like, you used to work all the time. He said, no, I work um, 24 hours a week, seven months a year. Uh-huh. That was his philosophy. Um, and he said, I pay myself in time, not money sometimes. So, like, if you're an independent worker, this is what you can do. Okay, but some of this may sound a little bit, you know, uh, elitist or something like that because it obviously depends on a certain amount of privilege or so on. And what about sort of, you know, working class folks? What about the dominant culture? Well, I don't think there's an easy solution. And that's what I found actually during this slow year was that this culture is very embedded in workaholism. It's got deep, deep, deep inequalities and racism and just structural issues that can't be solved by just slowing down and living more contemplatively and enjoying slow food. Um, but what I did find were a couple of things. First, by doing this, I connected to activist pathways that I never would have. For example, 
we joined 350.org. Do you know that organization, 350? Yep. And we got involved. We actually, uh, my wife and I were arrested with Bill McKibben in front of the White House for the Keystone Pipeline. Um, we just had more time to be civil disobedience. Yeah. Um, and also marching with my students at NYU for the student debt campaign. You know, students have a trillion dollars worth of debt. These are things that I didn't have time to do before. So now you could look at the long-term problems. You know, like the right wing is really good at focusing on 30 years down the line, sort of cultural re-engineering and thinking ahead. Like, you know, they gave out 100,000 copies of Anne Rand's book, um, Atlas Shlipfrog for free on the college campuses. Why? Oh, they're thinking down the road. Maybe they'll be able to, like, influence the way people think. Um, so I hope they to give out 100,000 free copies of New Slow City as well to, to influence them in a different direction. I don't know if that's going to be possible. But, you know, uh, those of us who are you know, more on the progressive side of the spectrum, we should also be thinking about that long term. And by freeing up time, you have time for that. Now, the kinds of policies that flow out of this are more, you know, policies that are redistributed. You know, you need to have free health care for everyone so that you're not just cinched to a job just for that. Um, better maternity leave and paternity leave for people who have kids, you know. Um, these types of sort of safety net type policies I just found out are just incredibly important so that we get out of this crazy competitiveness and this almost like Darwinistic system that we're stuck in. And it kind of sort of has people who are working just barely getting by, feeling stressed and nervous and not good and the comparison with others. So I just think, you know, at least moving in that direction towards more equitable society is another thing that I learned. Any other policy ideas that just jumped to mind? Yeah. I think it's really important to help people distinguish between quality of life issues and standard of living issues, and that once people have a decent standard of living, American culture kind of mandates that you continue to strive for an ever higher standard of living, and at a certain point, your quality of life for most people starts going down if that's where you're striving toward. Mm-hmm. So to make that distinction where standard of living has to do with your stuff and quality of life has to do with your relationships not only to other people but to our life support systems, air, soil, and water. So right. that's what I try to encourage people to make that distinction. And that's what you all are doing, I think, in the LA Eco Village model that you have. You're actually modeling that for others in Los Angeles, I'd encourage you to go check it out. Um, you know, because life is really about sort of having, being, and doing. We often think it's just about sort of doing and having stuff, but what about just this sort of space for being and connecting and like, actually one thing I sometimes like to do is, all right, if we can just, everyone just kind of close your eyes for a second. Just kind of take a deep breath. It's a nice, beautiful Saturday afternoon. Um, let all the stress of the week kind of go and just be here in this lovely bookstore together. Yeah, just take a deep like, breath from your diaphragm. Listen to whatever sounds you hear around you. And I want you to picture a moment when you felt really happy and content and joyful. You know, what were you doing? Where were you? Who were you with? Just go to that place for a moment, whatever it is for you. Okay, and you can kind of start to open your eyes again. So it's like a lovely practice to do whenever you 
think about it because it sort of doesn't it fill your body with like kind of like good feelings. Um, does anyone want to share sort of what their moment of happiness or joy was with the group? Mm-hmm. The other day when the real intense heat wave broke and there was an evening finally that was cool, I just was on my way to do some shopping, outside just walking, and felt cool breeze. Uh-huh. Right. Yes. Very lovely. I can completely picture that. Thank you for sharing that. Any others? Yeah? I just, I really enjoyed the last minute of my friends, my writer friends, some of them went back to college. Um, the miracle of the internet, I mean, that might have been slow, but I uh-huh. connect So connecting with people. Who are just witty and relaxed enough in their lives that they can communicate. Right. So human connections. Anyone else? Yeah, Smith College. I, you know what, I thought about when I was a kid, just riding my bike outside in the neighborhood with the neighborhood kids and everything, just being outside, you know. Right. Maybe one other burning, one that someone wants to share. Well, I was just too though when I mentioned a game point swimming in the ocean. Okay. Swimming in the ocean with your grandchildren. Right, so what do you notice about these just random examples that people... Any, do you notice that they're all simple, very simple activities? They're often nature-based, the breeze in your skin, uh, in the ocean, you know, and it's usually about interconnection, even on the internet, um, but usually in person, that kind of thing. So these are simple things. So this makes me ask myself, you know, why is it that our society... Um, our major, what's our major measure of progress in the society? How, how do we measure the success of our country? GDP. GDP, right. So why is GDP, which just measures economic throughput through the economy, why is that at the center? I mean, if divorces go up, GDP goes up because there's more lawyers and real estate deals <laughs> being done. And if the Exxon Valdez oil spill happens, GDP goes way up because there's a huge cleanup effort. Um, so we're measuring the wrong things. So like, how do we get to a genuine progress indicator, which is one thing we're doing at the World Policy Institute, or even better, gross national happiness, which exists in Bhutan and has been uh, taken up in Oregon and Washington on the local levels? And Santa Monica, right here in California, fantastic, GNH. Um, you know, and also, um, what about living well policies? You know, living well, like in Bolivia, where my family is currently uh, based, you know, the entire national policy is around suma camaña, which is Quechua for vivir bien, or living well, which basically means have enough housing, family, friends, connection, and so on, and then stop. Stop growing. <laughs> Didn't your body stop growing at a certain point? You know, wouldn't it be disgusting if we kept... I mean, but yet our economic growth is just we have to just keep growing and growing and growing. So there's, you know, this, this living well that we should be getting towards. Um, and maybe I'll just show you all a couple... you want to see a couple of images, a couple of uh, slides that I brought along? Um, don't have time for the whole thing, but just kind of... Um, you know, just we're part of the great turning right now with all of these related trends like, you know, vegetarian and slow food, um, what's called work-life balance. Um, but I think that's a terrible term because actually, <laughs> you know, work is part of life. It's not like you're balancing the two. Um, even billionaires like Carlos Slim calling for a three-day work week. Also, Naomi Klein has been calling for it um, because she says it's the green alternative to be like slowing down and like sort of just producing less. Um, 
ours, you know, as you know, the United States, like we actually only have 12 days of vacation a year, which is the lowest in the industrialized world. Uh, terrible, and as I said earlier, you know, work hours are going up at the same time. Um, you know, down in Bolivia, we're part of a, a very successful transition town, and I know that David's working with that movement, but just getting from fossil fuels to, you know, the LA bike path, and the eco-villages and slow food LA and everything else that's part of this great turning. Um, this just shows how, like, just people say, oh, but, you know, we have to keep growing the economy to be happy. Well, actually, all the data shows that what happens is that, like, $11,000 of GDP, uh, it starts to plateau out. So money buys happiness, but only to a certain point, and it stops buying happiness. Um, so if you get to the, even the level of Puerto Rico, uh, South Korea, it's just starting to lose. Um, so these are just like some... Um, in Bolivia, they have the law of Mother Earth, also part of the Great Turning, which is giving the Earth all these rights. Um, another model we can learn from. Um, just some images of like other ways of constructing housing that I think are kind of beautiful. Um, and I have many more, but I think I want to just leave it at that for now um, and open it up for any questions or comments um, that you'd like to ask. And do speak up because it's being uh, recorded and to become have your question part of the. Yeah. When you were li living in Yes, the 12 by 12, I'll just show you a couple of images of that actually as well, but the, the 12 by 12, um, this is the, like, this is the, this is the 12 by 12 house, the actual photo of it, where I lived. Um, sorry? It's very quaint, it's very pretty. Um, it only costs $7,000 to build this really attractive house, very well built, it'll last 100 years, 7000 And the land costs 10000 because it's about an hour from Chapel Hill in a more rural area. So for $17,000... You're set for life. <laughs> Do you have any interior shots? Um, I don't have interior shots, but this actually is the floor plan that an artist friend of mine drew to kind of um, show it. These are on my website, williampowersbooks.com. You can kind of see these. Um, this is the layout of how it's part of a permaculture. Someone just asked uh, if food was being grown. I mean, I helped maintain it. The physician actually planted everything there. So she has a, a map of all the friends and family that gave her sort of this blueberry plant or that almond tree or whatever. And it's this beautiful garden map. And actually, this was rendered from her garden map. So it's like a living relationship landscape. And it's organized into zones. So zone one is like the kitchen gardens right around the house. Zone two are things that are outside of the deer fence, um, like sort of berries and stuff. And zone three is forest and nature and so on. That connects to a larger connectivity of forest around her. So I would just walk for hours and hours uh, in this beautiful countryside around it. And just some of the organic farms around the area that are producing. Other questions? Don't be shy. <laughs> yeah, the acres were 30... Okay, she asked, like, what were the acres? Um, it was 30 acres, this particular development. Um, and there were five... Uh, plots of an acre and a half. And Habitat for Humanity constructed three of them. And that's where, so one neighbor was African-American, another was Guatemalan, and then there was another guy from Mexico that owned those houses. And their other neighbor was an uh, Anglo uh, farming family. And and then this this retired physician, whose kids had grown up. So how did this subdivision of 
Exactly. So this doesn't happen spontaneously, does it? So, oh yeah, maybe you could just pass that around. Um, How did the subdivision of this 30 acres happen? Somebody bought it or owned it and planned this thing. So there's a really inspiring eco-developer named Harvey Harmon who realized that sprawl was about to kill Chatham County, the neighboring county outside of Chapel Hill, Raleigh-Durham, the research triangle. And he said, oh, what we can do is we can actually go ahead and buy up the land, get finance, buy up the land, and this is not the only one he bought up, and we can save it that way. So we just have like these five houses, densely, you know, acre and a half, and the rest is just like a wild forest for 20 acres. Um, And he did another one where it takes part of an old North Carolina town that was like falling apart. He just sort of like had part of the downtown and then the acres around it, and they put like dense housing right near the downtown, nature, and town for walkability. Yeah. Um, So in the 12 by 12 book, the the process of getting to this Slow comfort and peace there that you can get in nature and you can get in a very simple life and a more isolated life. How much of that were you actually able to achieve in, in the urban setting doing all that Yeah, we were. So, how much were we able to achieve in New York City of this inner peace? A lot. A lot more than I would have expected going into this. Why? Because we had urban sanctuaries. And I'm sure a lot of you even have those here in LA, places where you go and you can just feel disconnected. Like for us, it was the Pier 45 in the West Village, which you go out to the end and you can't even hear the West Side Highway anymore. It's just this peaceful space in the water. Um, the Ramble in Central Park, which is this really cool, like winding path to area. Um, or even like Chinese decorative arts in the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which is like this little third story nook that nobody knows about until now. <laughs> um, so all of these were our urban sanctuaries that we would go to on a daily basis, sometimes two or three times. Or even into whatever random church you're walking by, just go in and tune into the silence. You know, that helps enormously. Um, and then having like the lower houred work week was important. Um, and <clears throat> like going to Rockaways on the subway, just like 45 minutes to an hour to Rockaways, and your body surfing. You know, you're in the ocean. Like, of course, you can do that here as well. So all of these things really made us feel really happy. However, I would say it's harder. I certainly realized that when you're in nature, you are a creature among creatures. You're in your sort of animal breathing with nature. I mean, all of us know that feeling, right? A lot of us went there in our happiest moment just now. And so that is so much easier. So it takes effort to do it in a city, but it's possible, like using the kind of tools I talk about in the book. Yeah. A couple of questions. Uh, I want to know a little bit more about how you happen to end up in Bolivia, which I think I heard you say is where your home base is. Yeah, it is, exactly. And I also want to know if in your urban setting, and perhaps we'll see this in the book, uh, if you got to know all your neighbors and was there any kind of intentionality there about community. and. Also, in the 12 by 12. Oh my gosh, three questions. <laughs> okay, well, um, maybe we'll start with those. So the second question again was? Uh, well, if there was intention, did, did you know your neighbors? Did you move into that particular building? How many years yeah. were there? And did you get okay. to know your neighbors before you moved in or after you moved in? Right. And did you ever get together with your neighbors and that sort of thing? Okay, so I'll tackle those two first. So um, yes, we knew our neighbors. There were 22 apartments 
in this building, and they were all micro apartments. They were all 340 square feet. Um, none of them were affordable housing. However, some of the new apartments and micro apartments in New York do always dedicate a certain number to affordable housing that are really cheap. But of course, it's much cheaper to have a smaller apartment. Um, and it was actually really interesting because I think because the apartments were so small, the neighbors totally gelled. And there were constant, like, out, like, this little tiny courtyard we had, there was always, like, barbecues outside. And actually, people started going on vacation together in our building, which is, you know, kind of interesting. They would do that. Um, and so there was that contact. And also, we had a shared space in the basement, just a kind of a, gr a grimy basement, but you could put your bikes down there and everything. So that shared space encourages you to kind of meet up as well. So that was really nice. And then the question about why we moved to Bolivia and so on. Well, I mean, my wife and I both have a long history with Bolivia going back to 2001. And... Um, um, you know, lots of connections and lots of work there, and we feel very part of a community. And also for work and so on, it was just like the right place for us to be. So this is the town we live in. It's called Samaipata, where the Andes meets the Amazon. It's a 5,000-person town. Um, definitely a lot slower than Manhattan, as you can see. Uh, this is the area around it. You know, Amboro National Park, um, just really gorgeous biodiversity. Bolivia, I don't know if you know, is a uh, mega diverse country. It's one of 10 mega diverse countries by Conservation International. It means it has the most species diversity of almost any country in the world. Um, and also a rich cultural diversity. Um, so this town that we're in actually has people from 30 countries now, which is pretty incredible. So all of our friends are like, you know, either Bolivian, maybe half are Bolivian, the other half are like French, Austrian, German, uh, Argentinian, like all our neighbors from other countries because people are kind of, what they call decolonizing their habits, like decolonizing their kind of um, overwork and ambition. <laughs> ambition is probably one of the worst uh, diseases, I think, because it should be creation instead of ambition. You've heard that poem by uh, Camus, um, which is like, um, he said, called it the physics of happiness, and he wasn't a very happy guy, I guess, but um, it was this. It was time in the open air, love for another being, freedom from ambition, creation. So time in the open air is obvious, right? Outside. Love for another being doesn't mean 10,000 friends on Facebook, but a being. Um, freedom from ambition. You can be ambitious, but be free of it, free from it, and creation, create things. So that's what a lot of people in the village are doing now. Um, this is actually the house that we built last year in our land. Um, so it's adobe, and it's actually quite minimalist because really it's just like this is a mezzanine bedroom on top, and that's a living room, kitchen, dining room below, and then there's one bedroom in the back and like a bathroom and porch. There's a lot of like sort of outdoor space. And now this is all permaculture. Even just a year later, this is all banana trees and permaculture gardens all around it. We have a huge orchard and stuff, so really good uh, climate and so on. So that's a little bit about sort of our reality there. So, yeah. Other questions? Yeah. Yeah, well, Bolivia is um, a landlocked country between Argentina, Chile, Ecuador, and Peru, um, Paraguay, and it's 10 million people in an area twice Germany, and Germany has 80 million people. <laughs> so it's very like sparsely populated, um, and in some ways the development failure has been a conservation success in the sense that it has these incredible wild areas. I mean, if you're flying across the Bolivian Amazon, you won't see any people for like two hours or any villages or anything. It's just absolutely incredible. Um, so there's a movement 
And I guess you know Evo Morales is president. How many people know that Evo Morales is president of Bolivia? Okay, so he's a socialist. Indig- he's the first indigenous president in the Western Hemisphere, unless you count some Mexican president like a long time ago, um, who was Mestizo. But he's a pure indigenous, and he's a socialist. Um, so he won in a landslide in 2005, and he's been in power since. Um, and there's been some hypocrisies and so on, um, because he's been pressured very heavily by these big Brazilian companies. They want to put this huge highway right through um, the Bolivian Amazon. Um, I don't know if you've seen this. Uh, like, there's this. Have you heard of the the, the Tipnis conflict? Like, so basically, Brazil is kind of just chewing through their Amazon. They've arrived at the Bolivian border, and they want more for soy production and so on. And it's very easy to corrupt a poor country government like Bolivia through a couple million dollars in bribes to someone, which is nothing for these big projects, you know, and you're just like... So they actually bribe to get this highway through a not just national park called Tipnis, um, but it's also an indigenous reserve. And, and so they, they put the highway up to both sides of the preserve, the stiffness, and they were about to plow through it without any environmental impact statement or cultural thing. The people rose up and they marched all the way across the country for 50 days. Thousands and thousands of women, men, and children. This is the conflict they had then with the... But they stopped it. They stopped the highway. So for three years now it's been stopped, which is positive. And that's what Bolivians do. They are organized. You know, unionization in the U.S. is what, 8%, 7%? Bolivians are like, you know, 70% unionized. So when they want to stop something, they just stop it. Like they, you know, and they're, they've got this social fabric that we're, that we need to recreate here. Like, you know, the bowling alone idea that we used to bowl in leagues, now we bowl alone. Um, we need to get back to bowling in leagues and <laughs> joining eco-towns and transition groups and so on and becoming, creating that social fabric that can then build over the long term towards that kind of a, you know, more high context society. Yeah? Um, my impression is that you're focused um, mm-hmm. Oh yeah, this may be It's not amplifying, but You're focused pretty much on what we as individuals can do to create a slow life for ourselves um, Do you have ideas about socioeconomic structures that it could be changed to be supportive of slow lifestyle for more people than just us who are initiated in our own lives? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I mean, I do believe that the revolution if there's going to be a revolution, it has to be irresistible in the sense that we have to make it attractive and there has to be like almost, um, you know, like Buckminster Fuller had that quote where he said, you know, you can never impose or force a new system in. You can only create a new system or a new model that makes the current one obsolete. And quite frankly, I feel like if you look at it for a minute, these related trends of slow food, slow money, transition, um, you know, energy independence and alternative energies, living in eco-villages, all of this, isn't that like much more attractive than like being in a suburb, isolated, working 50 hours a week, everything? I mean, you know what I mean? It's like, um, so it is, it is more attractive, okay? So the thing is, we need to make it more public. We need to enjoy this other lifestyle, especially among cultural creatives. Most people sitting here at this bookstore are part of that top 5% of the society that once you start to change your habits and question your beliefs, and that's sometimes the hardest thing, 
It's very easy to go get arrested in a protest or whatever, but to change your own life, that's sometimes the hardest thing. And psychologists say it's good to do incremental steps. So I'm not saying you should go live in a 12 by 12 house tomorrow. In fact, I had someone say to me, oh my, but honey, my, my closet's 12 by 12, you know? <laughs> like, I'm not saying you should make that radical decision or that you should um, go in a micro apartment or go work in the Bolivian Amazon. I'm just saying like life hacking is a good thing. Creative life hacking, like looking at, can I move at least 10% in this direction and start to change myself? And that's what leads to the bigger cultural change. So the transformation does come from the, the individual level. You know, it's not going to be just imposed by some model. I get that. Yeah. Yeah. It takes a long time that way. <laughs> I, would, I would just add to your answer. Um, so, part of Transition Pasadena is also involved with. Uh, we have a network of time banks, mm. and in creating the time bank, mm. um, what I noticed was that yeah, it started off as an individual kind of effort. But as I started, was working, you know, I, I was in a relationship with people. And as those relationships started, and I'm sure you have the same thing with Depot Village, um, these relationships now create a network, and now you can start to do community-wide projects. And those then snowball into bigger things. But, yeah, it really does start with individuals working together. Great. Time banking. Another trend. Yes. <laughs> Okay. I would just like to comment on your comment about uh, doing things incrementally, and that is that 20 years ago we, we did say we've got a 20-year window to turn things around, but that window is gone now. We don't have that time, so I no longer, nor did I then, believe in incrementalism. I think we have to make radical and rapid changes, and we have to know and I don't think we need a psychologist to tell us what kinds of things inspire people to change radically and quickly. And there are about eight things, uh, that maybe 10, 12, but we know what they are and how to identify then the populations that will change because of fear or because of economics or because of health or because of, you know, the least likely reason that people will change is because of a rational evaluation of the situation. But some of us <laughs> do change because of that. And many other, like, charisma, love, and so forth. So know your audiences and, and what you can, how you can convince them to change quickly and uh, deeply. Right, good. Oh, thank you for those inspiring words. One or two other comments or questions that... Someone who hasn't spoken yet would like to, maybe someone over here? Yeah, sir. Maybe this gentleman and then. My name is Kate Shepard from Brea, Owen County, and I have a few ideas. Uh, target people like, you know, workforce center and people that are trying to get jobs. Basically, you their option is to work in PCDDP. But instead, if you at least give them the option of like uh, these eco villages or be able to live in such a, way, uh, such a sustainable way, like in these ways. And then also including people that are homeless or shelterless, um, like shelters around the area, that would be uh, two uh, places to target the, uh, towards being able to have the option to choose a more sustainable living rather than the Absolutely. So channel folks into these eco-villages and other mechanisms of livelihood. You know, livelihood is the absolute most fundamental thing. Thank you for sharing that. I was wondering about social media and what role that played in your slow lifestyle, okay. and if that affected your happiness. 
Okay, I can tell you have a, a problem with that, right? <laughs> She's asking, or do you? I'm trying to hiatus right now. Oh, really? Okay. For how long? How long has your internet so far, hiatus? It's been on Facebook before for two, two years. Sorry. Um, right now, it's been a week. And I'm seeing how that goes again. Okay. Yeah, so she's asking about technology, and how do you, well, I mean, I sometimes say, like, you know, technology should be your tool, you shouldn't be its fool. So you look for ways to, once you've kind of 80-20'd your life, and you figure out, like, what are the core things that you really feel most passionate about and want to be doing, then make sure that whatever technology, whether it's Twitter or Facebook or Internet, Google, whatever, is, is towards that. You know, and that's not just becoming this big, massive distraction in your life. So we also did that. Like during our slow year, we totally took uh, staycations in New York, and we not only like hid our gadgets for those staycations, but we like took the batteries out, hid the batteries on another side of the micro apartment, and the gadgets there. You know, to kind of make sure that we weren't tempted. Um, and then you have those four or five days disconnected in the city. You know, do you know David Abram, the cultural philosopher, talks about like the more than human matrix, connecting to that. That's how our, the humans, you know, the homo sapien has connected to the world forever. Until just very recently, it's just through our bodies, through our, you know. So taking away for a short period of time like this and just not having that a part of you is wonderful. But then when you come back to it, it can be your tool. And so I have like a much more healthy relationship now with devices. You know, I feel like it's like, on my list is like number 20 of the most important, but I use them, you know. Well, um, if that's all there is, I wanted to thank you all for coming today to Skylight Books. I appreciate it, and um, I'm happy to sign books, and um, I'd encourage you to get a copy here at this local independent bookstore. And um, thank you so much. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.